Yes, welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. is going to be the first episode of season two of the Quirky Science Podcast, and we have a special guest. I think in this season we're going to focus more on getting guests onto the show. Um, so this guest today is from this project known as Quality of Research Institute, where they try to study qualia, which is very fascinating. And so his name is Andres Milson. I think that's the correct pronunciation. I don't know. I'm sorry if it isn't. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, how's it going? Uh, yeah, uh, Andres. Uh, and uh, yeah, Emilson is um, a surname from the side of my mom. It's from an uh, Icelandic surname. It's um, kind of strange because uh, my mom was born in Brazil, even though both of her parents are Icelandic. So she has a pretty, pretty unusual name for, for being an Icelandic because um, Emilson actually means the son of Emil. Today, the thing that we'll discuss is we both have these ideas that are pretty connected and similar. Um, and I'm hoping that we can kind of uh, figure out how they're similar and how they're possibly distinct. Because I think that that they're kind of uh, like the same sort of thing being looked at from a slightly different focus. Um, so, uh, so... Your idea is uh, what is called neural annealing. And would you like to explain that? Yeah, sure. I mean, neural annealing, you can think of it as a very high-level framework for understanding a wide variety of uh, psychological phenomena, and in particular, like phenomena having to do with consciousness. But uh, I should say that neural annealing really kind of like starts out by saying that uh, at the neurological level, there is this process where um, basically when you modulate the amount of total energy in the nervous system, you get, first of all, uh, this process that's called entropic disintegration, which is what Robin Carhart-Harris has been talking about since roughly, I think, like 2014, when he published the entropic brain hypothesis. It has to do with this idea that an energized brain cannot sustain the patterns that are kind of most common in, let's say, the default mode network. But I think like it, it really extends to um, many other patterns that, in a sense, really kind of exist on the low-energy regimes of brain activity. But then uh, what we're adding to the picture is to say that when the brain is energized, you also have this phenomena we would call neural search, which is, you know, if you think of the brain as a constraint satisfaction solver that basically is taking into account 
a lot of different inputs to try to create a global picture that satisfies as much of those inputs as possible or like makes sense of those inputs in the best way possible. Uh, in a sense, when you are in an energized state, you're relaxing those, those constraints to some extent. And that may allow you to basically exit a local minima where perhaps you were satisfying maybe, you know, 60% of the constraints you required and making any local change to your models uh, would, you know, reduce the number of constraints you could satisfy. But because you're in this energized state, you can explore in a relaxed way uh, a broader region of configuration space and settle on perhaps completely new configurations that maybe now satisfy, let's say, 80% of the constraints as opposed to just 60. Um, and then the final piece of neural annealing is the cooling down process, where we basically uh, take from metallurgy kind of this idea of, of uh, um, metallic annealing, which is that over time, metals basically develop these imperfections. Uh, they become, quote-unquote, cold-worked. And um, over time, uh, the nervous system might be experiencing something uh, like that. In a sense, it's creating a lot of ad hoc changes in response to uh, new challenges in the environment. Um, but in order to kind of like actually integrate those ad hoc changes into much more um, kind of deeper models within your nervous system, you, you may actually need to kind of not only find a better solution that satisfies many more constraints, but also make it cool down pretty slowly so that it can actually integrate into the typical patterns that exist in the low energy regime. Um, and I think, yeah, kind of like a big picture, that would be it, I guess, to summarize, it is step number one, entropic disintegration, basically destroying pre-existing patterns that don't serve you well. Uh, second step is neural search, basically quick exploration of uh, various new possibilities. And the third one is cooling down, which basically makes the new patterns you discover actually sticky. And just to say one more thing about this, this kind of like has bearings on um, kind of like how do you engineer, for example, a psychedelic experience to maximize its therapeutic value? Because if you cool down too quickly, for example, you may you know, crystallize random patterns that, you know, they could survive in the high energy regime, but they don't serve you in the low energy regime. Or for example, if you disturb the neural search, um, if you become like really scared during a trip or something like that, then also, you know, the process gets disturbed. And likewise, you know, you can also <laughs> fail at entropic disintegration, although that might you know, take the shape of just not taking high enough of a dose, which <laughs> is not a very, uh, for most people, not, not, not something you would like to, to kind of recommend offhand. But yeah, I, I think like that's a big picture idea of what neural annealing is all about. Yeah, that was beautiful. So I guess the next part would be, so, so, the thing that I've been very interested in is kind of learning and development and kind of trying to understand like what our thoughts are on a neural level, but also like behavior and like 
kind of automated behaviors that we develop and stuff like this. That's kind of the path that I took to get to this idea that I've uh, called cognitive atomization. And it's kind of more, so it focuses a lot on this NMDA receptor, which is in a lot of the neurons. I think it's like 50% of them. And uh, it's involved in stuff like coincidence detection. And so kind of this idea of atomization would, it kind of, it kind of fits with the annealing idea in the sense that like the entropy part, the increase of entropy or the um, kind of like disintegration of your status quo mentality, uh, it might be occurring by kind of reversing learned coincidences. And I think that this might be something that occurs in a lot of the different systems in the brain, but possibly in a different way for each system, like say vision, audio, um, even multi-sensory things. I think that there's probably a kind of core universal learning uh, mechanism that kind of gets used differently depending on the type of information that is occurring. Like if, well, I won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but so if you imagine, like, so the idea of atomization would be if you took the word atom and disintegrated it into its letters and but but it's a little bit more complex than that because i think that we're perceiving the letters and the word as separate things so they're, they're not it's not actually that words are made of letters necessarily in our brain but that's just kind of a good example or if you took i really like this math problem example if you took like 5 plus 7 and that equals 12, and if you took the 5 plus 7 and kind of atomized it into a series of 1s instead, uh, this would essentially be a harder problem despite the fact that you're dealing with the same uh, quantities. Uh, it would be like, uh, like, so there's this idea called chunking that's used in psychology where people can kind of group concepts to make it, um, to decrease the load on working memory or even make it easier to remember things in long-term memory. And I think that when, if we take a drug that blocks NMDA receptors, I think it essentially like disintegrates all of the most integrated parts of our cognition so that they start separating back into their subcomponents. And I think that with the annealing model, I think it connects there in the sense that like when you're kind of reducing priors and stuff like that, um, I think the priors are basically 
uh, NMDA receptor mediated and you're kind of like uh, reversing the associative learning process and kind of turning it back so that you can like reinterpret uh, and form different it's kind of like a gestalt there's like those gestalt images where you can look at two faces or the picture is a wine glass in between those two faces I think that you're getting the same overall information, but you can reinterpret it by changing how you interpret it, I guess. I don't know. So does this make sense so far? I feel like I'm going on quite long. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think uh, there's definitely something very real about uh, cognitive atomization as, as you've uh, talked about it and uh, and also you've written about it. And um, I mean, I think it's very worth uh, trying to flesh flesh it out. I would completely agree that there is a phenomenological um, property that could be more or less described as cognitive atomization. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it would be good to try to kind of like add more detail or perhaps define it in um, in new terms uh, to, to see if we can get further. So, I mean, the, the first thing I would mention is that one of the things that uh, sounds confusing about saying cognitive atomization is that in a sense, you're kind of like breaking down your conscious experience into tiny pieces. But then there's kind of the, the broader question of like, well, if you're breaking down into tiny pieces, wouldn't you be in a sense only able to experience one of those pieces? Because now, you know, your, your conscious experience has divided into a number of, you know, atomic moments of experience but they're not aggregated. And, you know, that's a tremendously confusing thing about, like, how is it possible that you may, in a sense, atomize a percept, you know, a phenomenological object, and nonetheless be able to now perceive it as just multiple different smaller parts? Um, because in a sense, like, didn't you just break down the experience? Wouldn't there be other moments of experience? And um, I think, like, the, 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 in a sense, the proper way of analyzing these requires us to kind of like dig into the vocabulary for what we call the the binding problem of consciousness. And in particular, I would basically start out by kind of kickstarting kick a conversation about the difference between global binding and local binding. That global binding is the mere fact of all of the qualia that you're having right now being simultaneously experienced by a subject of experience. Whereas local binding is how different features or, or qualia varieties basically come together to f form um, what feels like uh, individual kind of chunks, as you were saying, like chunking in psychology, um, but also just like how we partition our experience into distinct objects we can focus our attention on. Like if there is a table and a chair in front of you, the, the chair seems to have a kind of holistic unity that uh, makes it, you know, kind of a rigid object where the color gets associated to the chair. Um, and, you know, if, if the table has a certain color, you don't confuse the color of the table with the color of the chair. Things are kind of like pretty well uh, united and, and settled in, in that sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you take a, a high enough uh, dose of uh, ketamine or something like that, perhaps you might be experiencing, you know, 
rather than ch a chair, you may experience like, oh, there's like four legs and <laughs> there's kind of this weird, you know, like plane on top of which the, the that is like settled on top of the, you know, four, four legs. And, and then there's this other thing like sticking out, which would be the, you know, the chair back and, and so on. And if you take a, you know, very high dose, all of a sudden you're experiencing a lot of tiny specks of attention and not necessarily even forming kind of a full percept. Um, I would I would add that like that probably would happen uh, more towards like the earlier part of a dissociative trip because partly because of the phenomena of annealing um, further down the line during the uh, a, a dissociative trip you would I think like generally experience pretty large phenomenal objects and actually objects that are potentially much larger than the objects that we normally uh, kind of chunk so. Uh, I would say, yeah, with something like an NMDA antagonist, you, you might actually span a broader range. It's not only about atomizing, but it's also about like uniting to a greater extent, especially as kind of the, the effects are winning down. But uh, yeah, happy to, to dive more, more deep into that. But yeah, for now, yeah, let's see. Uh, I'm curious what you think of this distinction between local and global binding, if, if, this, may, if this may help. Yeah, so... The binding problem is something that I am kind of not yet sure how to connect it with atomization. This is something I've kind of thought about, but so so my understanding of the binding problem, or at least because I haven't uh, looked up a lot of stuff about this, but when I first was... Um, Thinking about this idea of, well, basically I was on a cannabis trip and I started to feel really worried, I guess, or concerned about like, how could we possibly be, how could we possibly be experiencing the entirety of our vision at the same time? And like, why... Is it not a bunch of separate people, in a sense, kind of experiencing different sections of my vision? And, like, why, like, I don't know, it seemed to imply that definitely whatever I think consciousness is, it must span many neurons, and it just seemed like a very strange thing at the time. And then I kind of learned about the binding problem a little bit after that. And this I think the idea of the global versus local is interesting and useful because, like, I would say that most of the stuff I described with cognitive atomization is kind of on the local level. And I think that... I think I cannot comprehend how it would happen on the global level. If if the global level is essentially like what I described a second ago, like why am I having a unified experience of consciousness? But I think a lot of what we perceive, like I think atomization could in a sense be almost like the opposite process of synesthesia, where... Uh, synesthesia is like such an integrated experience that 
Well, well, I feel like there's two different ways synesthesia could go. Synesthesia could be that it's an experience of before you learned, it's almost like experiencing reality as if you didn't yet learn how to distinguish your senses. But I think you could also view it as forcing the integration of kind of multi-sensory experiences in a way that is kind of, it's almost like learning, associative learning is on overdrive possibly and pushing you to experience a blending of things more than usual. Like, like so objects in a sense might be pretty synesthetic in the first place. Like the idea that objects aren't just a, lo- a bunch of little atoms or that that we perceive them as kind of unified and stuff. I don't know. I feel like in a way that might be synesthetic. And also the last thing I kind of wanted to bring up. So I forgot what made me think about this. It was something in what you said, but I'll just go at it. Um, So one of the interesting things about, I think it was when you were mentioning with ketamine and the chair experience with kind of creating distinct legs and stuff like this and getting confused with the colors. Um, What's interesting is that people in psychosis will sometimes lose illusions. They will become immune to optical illusions and... I think kind of everything in perception is, in a sense, illusional. But I think that um, the things that we call illusions are typically kind of like an autocorrect of vision. But in reality, I don't think that objects are even a thing that exists or like lines or any of that stuff. I think those are kind of tools for us to use um, to make it easier to navigate the world. But I don't think it necessarily reflects anything that actually exists externally necessarily. Like it it kind of does. It's kind of hard to explain what I mean there. But I think (laughs) the loss of illusions is kind of like an atomizing. Like, I think that, um, like, if you were to just continue uh, going further and further, you might struggle to identify objects and stuff like that. I hope that made sense. It's a little bit harder to talk than it is to write, um, I notice. <laughs> um, so what do you think? Uh, no, I mean, I think, I think, uh, I mean, what, what you're saying makes sense. A uh, couple comments. So first of all, on synesthesia, uh, I mean, broadly speaking, my, my take on a synesthesia is that we are all synesthetic. It's just that we have a evolutionarily advantageous type of synesthesia. And I mean, I think like something very important to realize is that there really isn't any logical connection between a particular type of sensory input and the qualia that you experience uh, in a way that is triggered by that sensory input. Uh, There's really no 
fundamental reason why you know frequencies of light would correspond to phenomenal colors um the fact that we th you know intuitively think <laughs> that's kind of the natural or the kind of a you know logically necessary way for it to be is very illusory and it's just based on a consensus just because most people have that type of uh, association um and then of course you know maybe two percent of the population have a slightly different mapping um and we think of them as strange. And, you know, they may be strange, actually, in the sense that um, because we don't all have that particular mapping, it, it suggests that the mapping we do have is evolutionarily advantageous. So there's probably something that has to do in terms of the, the type of data structures that are useful to represent, let's say, visual input uh, have some kind of isomorphism with the structure of visual qualia that makes that mapping, in some sense, advantageous or more efficient for information processing. But uh, again, I mean, similar to this concept of uh, being stuck in a local maxima, I'm, I strongly suspect that there are like out there possible configurations of brains that navigate the world just as well as we do, and perhaps even better, but where they have a completely different mapping where they might experience, for example, smells uh, whenever they open their eyes and <laughs> they navigate spatially using, you know, sounds or, or uh, they may experience touch instead of smell and so on. And I think, yeah, all of those, you should think of them as um, programmable variables, not something that is, you know, written in, in the fundamental laws of nature. Um, but also, for sure, synesthesia, and I would say especially certain types of synesthesia, uh, like the ones generated by psychedelics temporarily, as well as uh, people uh, who are like savants uh, who have a very heavy amount of synesthesia. I would suspect that is more to do with basically kind of the inverse of atomization, where basically um, kind of the, the bundles of experience that become phenomenal objects, things you can attend to as buckets or as a chunk, uh, become larger and they incorporate more varieties of qualia. So if you're, you know, tripping on on LSD or something like that, all of a sudden the objects of perception stop being something like, oh, a chair or, you know, a school or something. And instead you experience something like an egregor or something like that, trying to experience the entire culture of a country all at once. <laughs> and you experience it with, you know, personality and, you know, smell and color and you know, moods and emotions and all of that just kind of bound together into this huge experience of a, you know, unified kind of, you know, agent, semi-agentive entity, which in a sense I, I used to explain to a large extent, like why, you know, these substances can feel so extraordinarily mystical or they can, you can feel that you can talk to spirits and I, I would associate it with, yeah, you, you know, the, the bucket size of your experience become larger. You can experience more types of qualia simultaneously into a unified uh, object of perception. Uh, so that's, a, yeah, that's about a synesthesia. Um, I figure, I mean, probably the way in which I, I would uh, go about kind of uh, improving our the kind of how we talk about cognitive atomization would be um, as we tend to do in Qualia Research Institute, which is trying to find out, first of all, a low-hanging fruit uh, mathematical object 
that might represent uh, what we care about, about the particular phenomena, and then see how far we can, we can take it, how much we can explain with it. And in the case of atomization, I, I would say we can probably go pretty far with even just talking about a graph, uh, basically explaining, describing an experience as a graph, um, where basically each node corresponds to uh, an individual quail, could be, for example, a speck of blue or like a speck of the, the smell of lavender or something like that. And the edges correspond to local binding connections. Now, what actually makes all of the local binding in an experience uh, kind of um, create a global bound experience is just the fact that the entire network is connected, that basically there is a path between any two nodes in the network. Um, and there, you could basically think of kind of a, a phenomenal object, let's say the, the chair we were talking about, as uh, a highly clustered region of the network. Basically, a lot of those nodes um, are highly connected with each other and not that connected with nodes in another cluster, such as those that uh, might represent a table. And let's say you take a NMDA antagonist, um, the, the way in which you might describe what might be going on there is that you're reducing statistically uh, edges just across the entire graph um, to such an extent that basically the clusters break down. So rather than having, oh, a cluster encompasses the entire chair, all of a sudden you just have, you know, a cluster for one of the legs, another cluster for another leg, and maybe there's still kind of a loose cluster for the entire chair, but is not actually sufficiently connected to, to be felt as something you can basically place, place your attention on. It, it's not self-reinforcing. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. What, what do you think about that as a, as a possible framework? Okay, so, so before I answer that, I wrote, I've been like writing some notes to make this easier. <laughs> but, um, okay, so the, you mentioned this interesting thing about how we can get these kind of really colorful experiences of kind of like our entire perception and and these are the kind of experiences that I feel I really seek out but I almost really just kind of really rarely ever experience those things anymore maybe related to being an adult or kind of a lot of reasons but um so something that's so so I think that when we're younger, there's things like, like say eidetic memory, where people will have like a very uh, uh, photographic and videographic kind of experience of memory. Um, children uh, usually actually have stuff like that, but then as they age, it seems to be lost. And I think... I think part of that is because when we're younger, everything is kind of so atomized and highly complex and f still foreign that we we actually are kind of forced to uh, have memories that are like so essentially expensive. They are 
And I think that is true of not just memory, but like our entire experience of reality. Like I, I would bet that there are ways that children experience their senses that are essentially like the kind of hyper-dimensional and confusing experiences that we get on like psychedelics and stuff like that where like 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 as we go on in age I feel that we learn all these strategies to kind of reduce information over and over it's like we're extracting our perception just further and further until it becomes as if like as if we're our adult minds are experiencing something like a two-dimensional as reduced as possible to the point where we're like like as long as we can still comprehend what is functional and useful for survival and whatever motivations we have i think we kind of drop sensory capabilities to that point and um I think that like the loss of eidetic memory is because we learn how to kind of just find shortcuts like using language to associate memories and I think the the more abstract we get I think like that there's probably well, well I don't know I won't, I won't go too far on that but okay so with the questions you asked um so what it reminded me of the mathematical things, um, I was kind of thinking like connect the dots almost. It kind of reminds like make it, if we were to make graphs and kind of models, and, and I feel like our perception kind of is graphs in a sense. Um, I think if we look at the idea of like connecting the dots. There's like some interesting ways to use that metaphor in a similar way to math. I might be wrong, so forgive me if it's like terribly wrong. <laughs> but um, so I think with if you imagine connecting the dots, you can increase the dots very much, and you will uh, if you draw lines to connect it to represent whatever object it's supposed to represent. Um, the more dots, it'll be more accurate. But you can also imagine if you just took it to the extreme end and reduced it to only two dots, you can pretty much get any possible object um, to fit those two dots. Like assuming that you don't just draw a line straight to the next one. And these dots can be like the amount of um, information that we're given. Um, so I didn't think through how to connect this exactly to atomization. Cause I feel like there's two different things that occur. Like, I feel like there's layers of the way that we perceive the world where like, like we're kind of taking in information and then checking it against our memory, like a library of like subsensory memories. And then if it seems 
to match, then we pull up that representation. So like with people who are schizophrenic or people that take diphenhydramine or other delirium drugs, I think that it kind of, um, it starts, uh, like I feel like you are getting less dots essentially before you conclude a representation that those dots are supposed to uh, symbolize. Um, so that might have nothing to do with the mathematical thing, but I feel like it kind of is like a more loose, relatable thing. Like I feel like we could potentially connect those two ideas in a way that's meaningful? I don't know. Do you think it's like way off base? No, I mean, I think, I think uh, it's possible. I mean, like something, something to point out is like, so consider the difference between um, uh, there's, I mean, in, in visuals, uh, the, uh, yeah, visual science, uh, there is um, the difference between stuff and things. And <laughs> it sounds like a very trivial distinction, but, <laughs> but actually there's a, something pretty profound about it, which is, if you look at, for example, a wall, and the wall is just a bunch of textures, visual textures. I mean, let's say, you know, a wall made of um, rock or, or, or gravel or something like that. Um, if you just experience it as texture, that, that is one thing. But then if you pay attention and all of a sudden you realize like, oh, there's like subtle, you know, happy faces that are actually embedded in the rocks or embedded in the, in the gravel. Um, that becomes things. So basically, before you pay attention and you actually identify uh, concrete objects that are in it, um, it's just like stuff. It's basically just kind of these, perhaps we could say, highly atomized uh, kind of surface. And as you're paying attention to it, you start binding features into you know full um, full objects. And of course, you know if you if you're in a psychedelic and you experience pareidolia actually you might be doing it in a sense um, kind of like overfeeding the the data set um, where like you look at a you know a gravel and you actually look at a, you, you know you start seeing frogs or or buildings or or people uh, hallucinating them all all at once um, um, and uh, in a sense like you could think of um, kind of like atomization as what is the window, like the number of nodes that you can simultaneously pay attention to in order to uh, fully populate the interconnections between those nodes. And let's say in a normal state of consciousness, that window have a, has a certain size so that you're looking at a wall and, you know, if the object is sufficiently small, you'll be able to uh, perceive it as that. Um, but if the object is just way too, too large, you may not be able to. Like if you're actually looking at this huge painting and you're just like focusing on a tiny part of it, you may not realize the, the objects embedded in the gravel is, let's say, the, the chin or the eye of, of a face for which you need to kind of zoom out. And uh, on a dissociative, I would say the largest window that you can, in a sense, focus on at once in order to populate the no the with edges, the nodes within that window, gets reduced. So, you know, rather than seeing kind of a, a large picture uh, embedded in the gravel, you can only focus on regions of it at a time. 
Whereas maybe on a psychedelic, it, it actually is the other way around. The buckets become larger. Um, you can, in a sense, integrate a bigger, bigger region of the network and populate the, the edges uh, within it. Um, and I think, like, I mean, this, this would be a fully testable thing to do, uh, definitely with a lot of paradigms in, um, like, vision science, uh, such as, basically, the, the, there's this thing called uh, texture analysis and synthesis. And I think that that could potentially be used to basically uh, actually quantify in a rigorous way what is kind of the, the window of atomization or the window of local binding uh, that you can, you can basically um, parse visually. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense for sure. Um, the thing you mentioned about stuff versus things, that's kind of interesting because so so there was a time where I started to dose cannabis like every day and it started to produce like uh, psychotic effects. I feel like cannabis is extremely complicated. Like I have a feeling that it can have totally opposite effects. Um, like it can be psychedelic sometimes, but it can also be completely lacking in psychedelic effects and be totally dissociative. And it seems like for the most part, a lot of the times when you first start using cannabis is when it's most likely to still have psychedelic effects. But then over time, I feel like it becomes much more heavily dissociative and psychotic. And I remember when I used it every day, I got to this point where I feel like I was trapped in like just experiencing textures and stuff. And it was extremely worrying to say the least um like i felt confused and kind of scared all the time like i felt like part of the fear i would have of people was mostly based on knowing that i couldn't seem like a normal intelligent person basically because i the I don't know. Everything was so overloaded with confusing amounts of uh, information, I guess, that I felt I wasn't exactly, I didn't have the capacity to process correctly. Um, and it seemed like I was basically stuck in the stuff world and kind of beginning to fail to make things. And, um, so I th the other thing I wanted to mention is I think the psychedelic state for adults and kind of in general, but I think the tendency, well, okay, let me think. Okay, so I think that the kind of evolutionary purpose of the psychedelic-related receptors is probably to increase consciousness when one can afford to do so. So I feel like the kind of atomization that's associated with psychedelics is kind of like how you said there is this kind of apparent opposite effects of dissociatives and psychedelics in certain ways. 
And I think that, um, I think that the natural psychedelic state is kind of connected. So it's serotonergic, which kind of correlates with things like, um, like how much food you have. So like if you were like starving, uh, presumably maybe your consciousness would decrease cause you can't be spending so much on it, which might lead to like, if you go far enough, maybe like psychotic symptoms. Whereas if you're living in like a very secure, um, socially good environment, um, maybe your brain starts to grant you more access. Like the more healthy you are, the more resources and security you have, your brain maybe grants you more access to consciousness in a way by atomizing things, but not necessarily removing the higher level integrated experiences. Like it's kind of um, an experience of both. It's like you're integrating things and uh, experiencing the fine details even more so. And I think at least in the lower levels, that's kind of what it's like. Um, so I don't remember what else I was going to say, but what do you think about this? Does this sound like it resonates with you, how you feel about psychedelics? Uh, to some extent. Um, so let's see. I mean, I think like, yeah, I mean, the, I would say, I mean, this notion of uh, when you're in a, in a scarce resources situation, scarce resources situation, that your brain grants you less consciousness. I mean, I think there's like something true, to, true about that. Uh, there's definitely various theories of depression, for example, that have to do as, um, yeah, adaptive ways of, for example, um, reducing your overall activity because, you know, the cost-benefit ratio of going out and finding food is uh, negative, you know, in, in some seasons and in, in some uh, particular social settings. Um, but, I mean, definitely also there's kind of this, uh, the rank theory of depression, um, which might be kind of a, you know, you might need a kind of different explanation there, um, which is that, yeah, basically, if one perceives oneself as being like sufficiently low status, it might be advantageous to be depressed because otherwise you may challenge the leaders of the tribe and be be expelled, which <laughs> obviously it's not a not very good for for the prospect of one's uh, inclusive fitness. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think like broadly speaking, the way we think of uh, different receptor types in at the Qualia Research Institute is not so much that they have you know individual kind of evolutionarily adaptive purposes. Is not that you know serotonin is the uh, you know, social molecule or the happy molecule or something like that. Uh, we think of it much more in terms of actually something much more low level, which would be different neurotransmitters are different ways of modulating the neuroacoustic properties of the brain. Basically, they dampen or enhance certain types of resonance. Um, in the case of psychedelics, the way we think of it, uh, you know, cer certain serotonin receptors like 5-HT2A or 5-HT7, we think of them as basically things that uh, really increase the resonance of high-frequency harmonics. Um, 
And those are basically region-specific uh, harmonic waves. Uh, so, for example, your you know the brightness of colors or how like the intensity of local binding uh, between specific aspects of your experience, like you know the a chair and a sound and this type of synesthesia. Those would be kind of region-specific um, harmonic waves becoming uh, synchronized. Uh, so that type of local binding. Whereas, yeah, like NMDA antagonism, we may think of it as largely dampening most types of resonance, but they might increase both very high resonance and also relatively low resonance. So, you know, definitely a lot of EEG measurements of uh, ketamine uh, have this interesting phenomena that like, sure, they dampen most of the activity, but then you nonetheless see a very increased amount of activity in the gamma band, um, pretty high frequencies, and also an increased activity in the delta band, like pretty low frequencies, which is kind of having, I suppose, a type of like very mystical dream in the sense of like, overall, your energy levels are down, but you still have kind of these high frequency uh, phenomena going on. Um, I, w I would also add that like the kind of like leading framework that we're using uh, at QRI is basically breaking down uh, experiences into the following three categories, which is um, integration, consonance, and energy. Uh, in the case of uh, kids, I would say that, I mean, broadly speaking, they have more energy. Uh, so I do think it's, it's not a unfair characterization to say that kids are kind of um, uh, constantly microdosing. Uh, I mean, I don't think, I don't think being five-year-old is like, you know, taking 200 micrograms of, of acid. I think that's an exaggeration, but I do think being five-year-old is maybe similar to having taken, you know, 15 or 20 micrograms of LSD. So it's not, it's not that intense, but come on. Yes, it is definitely more intense than just being an, an adult, at least like relative to, to the size of your brain. Um, and, and also, yeah, just like more, more resonance and uh, that higher amounts of uh, integration, more broadly speaking. And I would say that like, yeah, the uh, phenomenon of annealing, it's kind of confusing because, I mean, really what annealing is all about is increasing integration. But the way it does that is through increasing energy. Um, now, there's a few exceptions here, which is that there are some drugs that we think directly simply increase integration kind of independent of the other axes and those would be yeah by far the most interesting ones uh, in this context would be mdma and 5-meo dmt which seem to basically just massively increase integration kind of the, the synchrony between different uh regions of your nervous system without you know going through this route of neural search um so i mean in turn it, it, it does kind of like have as an implication that, you know, you're not going to do very complex problem solving with uh, MDMA or with 5-MeO-DMT as opposed to, let's say, if you were to explore concept space with ketamine or LSD or, <laughs> or the combo or something like that. But, um, but nonetheless, 5-MeO-DMT or MDMA are much more likely to heal uh, trauma, especially if you think of trauma as a failure of integration, kind of different sub-networks of your nervous system 
are not talking to each other. There's kind of a, a communication breakdown. And the communication breakdown leads to kind of perpetual dissonance because the networks cannot coordinate with each other. So there will be firing at frequency, frequencies that are incompatible with each other and there's no way to uh, dampen it or modulate it. Whereas, yeah, increasing integration will basically allow them to start talking to each other and prevent that, that type of dissonance in the future. Um, yeah, uh, definitely definitely went a little bit of an tangent, but uh, <laughs> that hopefully gives you a, a bigger perspective. But yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, serotonin, first and foremost, would be a, a way of increasing the energy parameter. Basically, it makes the brain much more resonant, would be, would be my overall claim. Oh, and, and perhaps like the, the best uh, kind of example of this is the tracers, right? Like you take LSD and uh, you move your hand around and you see all of these fascinating tracers, which you can think of them as uh, loops that basically after, let's say, 50 milliseconds, you re-experience the input that you experienced uh, 50 milliseconds ago. And it's recursive. So that like, if you take enough, you're not only looping on top of the sensor input, you're also looping on top of the previous loop. <laughs> so there's kind of this non-linearity why, you know, the jump between zero and 100 micrograms is not as high of a difference as between 100 and 200 <laughs> is because the, the recur recursive aspect of the, the looping that, you know, you get these non-linear effects. And of course, 400 micrograms is, you know, a completely different world <laughs> than 200 micrograms. Yeah, that's, I like the trails point. That's like something I've thought about trails or like palinopsia is because I actually get that symptom quite a lot. And I, I mean, so I kind of use it as like a biomarker for myself, but, um, what I've noticed is, well, I think it's essentially like, like, so in the coincidence detection with an MDA, uh, the difference between like NMDA receptors and like, let's say like AMPA glutamate receptors, uh, one of the big differences is the amount of time that they will activate. And then there's also stuff like long-term potentiation, which those receptors are involved in. And I think in terms of like, like looping, I think that's like a really good term because it's like, like I think if you think of the breathing walls effects, I think some amount of that is also looping of motion. Like I think our own breathing is uh, causing our brain to essentially like quickly automate the experience of motion like within like seconds or something like that. Whereas normally we might have to stare at a moving, a repetitious moving picture for like 30 seconds or a whole minute before our brain starts to kind of, uh, loop those experiences and i think a lot of the different effects could be interpreted through that lens of like looping um and right no i mean i i, I sorry to interrupt but yeah no, i i completely agree the i think the term 
we tend to use is uh, drifting. <laughs> but I, I, I would add that, yeah, I mean, drifting, I would say, is, a, um, is an emergent effect of the combination of uh, looping uh, or the tracer effect together with actually, yeah, something like cognitive atomization because um, the kind of window uh, features that we tend to bind together uh, on a psychedelic becomes different. Uh, I would say generally a little bit larger, but also just different. So that, you know, whenever you experience a little bit of a change in the, in the location of a feature, um, it's easier for the visual system to kind of reinterpret it as slightly in a different place so that it can parse better as kind of a chunk with something else. I mean, that's kind of like, for example, you may experience, uh, hallucinate the eye of a person, you know, shifting a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, so that now you can experience both of their eyes at once as kind of like these, you know, shining <laughs> goggles or something. Um, but yeah, basically, I, I think a lot of drifting happens so that the features become reorganized such that you can perceive them all at once. And the, the place where this is the most obvious is on symmetry. Basically, you experience things as more symmetrical than they are on a psychedelic. And something that, I mean, there's a lot of reports of this, and I, um, I would love to actually study these rigorously with, um, with an app, which would be that basically on psychedelics, you can put, let's say, like several dots on a picture that are like almost symmetrical, but not quite symmetrical. And when you're sober, you very quickly realize, oh yeah, this is not perfect symmetry. But on a psychedelic, you will kind of like toggle between experience it, kind of like it will click into perfect symmetry. And then you realize like, oh, it's, it's not symmetrical, but then it will click again and you will kind of like toggle between them. And if you're in a high enough dose, you may just experience the hallucination of it being symmetrical. <laughs> so yeah, I would say that's another piece of the puzzle for the, the drifting on psychedelics. That's really interesting about the symmetry. Um, I think I think this effect, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like, I feel like psychedelics are enhancing learning, like integration, like very strongly while also atomizing and kind of disintegrating already integrated things so that like things like the drifting effect is like a byproduct of the enhanced learning and like, like even the symmetry, I feel it's kind of the same way that we would begin to recognize objects and faces and familiar things. And I think that that sort of connects to experiences I've had with taking stimulants. Like before I ever tried kind of any psychedelic or anything, uh, when I would take Adderall as prescribed, I would, ex after probably like two or three months, probably it's it's probably like psychotic effects mildly because of upregulated dynorphin or something. But what I would notice is that there would be a loss of symmetry to where I would look in the mirror and it was kind of grosser looking, like but but it would apply to everything. Like everybody would look a little bit more disfigured in a way like everything would look more it would it would look like my vision is enhanced but i think i think it is in a sense in the sense that 
that normally we kind of create these little cartoon versions of reality that look pretty and human and everything is kind of like symbolic, like we're living in this video game. But when you start to like take it back and start getting more dissociated or psychotic, uh, the symmetries kind of like fall away and things start to look a lot creepier. Like you notice like every hair or um, every slight asymmetry. I feel like you can start to notice those things and it becomes more bothersome. And I've noticed it on things like Memantine and like Ketamina and DXM where... If you like look in the mirror, I mean, I mean, it kind of depends because at some point when when the dose is like higher you, and you look in the mirror, it's like things get like blurry and there's like other problems that like like it's no longer so clear anymore. Like there's too many distortions and problems with perception. But if if you do it on lowish doses, you look in the mirror, it, it's like you'll notice. If you turn your face, I feel like it, it looks like it's different people at every angle. And I think even with looking at other people, it can sometimes be like this. It's almost like the continuity of things is broken. Whereas like on psychedelics, it's it's like everything is like super continuous, like you mentioned. Like like how you the description of like people's eyes like drifting and trailing and like trails are almost the opposite, and this kind of gets into the the that flicker idea where it's like like if you start dissociating more and more, um, it's almost like everything is like like the temporal experience is like individual frames, and it gets more choppy. Like the continuity is lost, whereas with trails. It's kind of like hyper con con continuous, and um, the things you mentioned. This is like kind of far back, but you mentioned high frequency r related to both psychedelic and dissociative experiences, and I think what it might possibly be that's uh, different is that I think with dissociatives, it's as if you're entering an experience of novelty where now your brain is like actively becoming conscious and trying to understand the perceptions because you're taking these things that have removed your understanding. And now your brain is like essentially like speeding up and trying to compensate for uh, the loss of understanding. And then with psychedelics, I think it's, almost like I think it's similar except that you can not necessarily completely lose understanding but also like like I feel like I'm trying to think like I feel like it's high frequency because you're essentially inducing some of the mechanisms that are related to new experiences like when you experience something new I feel like these mechanisms get induced to help you quickly assimilate those new experiences like like that uh, like integrate them into your prior 
understanding of the world. And I think like, like many tiny little mini psychedelic experiences happen in novel experiences like travel and uh, just new experiences in general. I feel like you kind of enter this higher consciousness, uh, neural annealing state, and then attempt to assimilate those new things into the old. So, so kind of like, I guess the difference I would think is that with psycho, no, with dissociatives and psychosis, it's like, uh, you become high energy because now you're forced to, because, uh, you're lo- you're, you're kind of having an amnesia. Whereas with, uh, psychedelics, it's almost like, like, like I, I would wonder if we could test whether dissociative drugs, some of their effects might, uh, like rely on uh, 5-HT2A receptors or something like that. Like maybe when you block it, things start to appear new and it forces those mechanisms to kind of naturally um, occur or something like that. I don't know. I know there's glutamate release related to the glutamate blocking drugs. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, there's an article uh, I wrote about uh, <laughs> the experience at uh, Ephemeral, but I mean, I, I've written a lot about like other festivals like Burning Man and other and conferences and so on. But I mean, uh, Ephemeral definitely noticed it had a significant psychedelic effects, <laughs> completely independent of uh, you know substances. It's just, um, but yeah, I mean, I think like the the, the ec- explanatory framework uh, we we use here is basically the balance between energy sources and energy sinks, where, um, I mean, a, a festival, basically the completely new context, um, I mean, as well as like traveling to completely new culture um, or exotic places, um, you're constantly being surprised and your models basically break down. You don't have a, a place in which to sink the energy uh, as we usually do. And basically that leads to a buildup of energy over time. And uh, basically, neural annealing uh, as a framework would generally predict that, I mean, the higher the energy, but especially the longer you keep the energy uh, heightened, the, the deeper the annealing effects are going to be. So there really is a huge difference between attending Burning Man for just two days versus attending Burning Man for an entire week. Uh, there's kind of a, a much deeper uh, transformation that happens if, if you attend for an entire week because you actually get to <laughs> to the moments where <laughs> where uh, there's entropic disintegration and, and finally uh, annealing. Um, now, I mean, also just a quick thought on like the different types of, um, of uh, kind of symmetry detection on different substances. So if you're on MDMA because of the drastically enhanced integration, um, I mean, I... I would strongly expect, and I, I have heard some reports about this, but yeah, I would strongly expect that if you look at the face of people, the faces of people tend to look much more beautiful. And, you know, it's so much easier to fall in love with somebody uh, you just met if you happen to be on MDMA. <laughs> and uh, it's almost, you, you can feel, you, you can pierce into that person's soul. But to, a, to some extent, it's because you're replacing the person with kind of this idealized icon and you're overriding a lot of the asymmetries or imperfections that you may be uh, detecting otherwise uh, in a sense being like hyper charitable uh, with, with them. Um, 
But there's kind of like a peek into just how symmetrical and harmonious your experience can be on, on MDMA. I mean, it's kind of a guaranteed harmony and integration. But um, if you compare it with, for example, a psychedelic, where, yeah, like most of the time in a psychedelic, it's going to be this weird mixed experience. But there are these sporadic, very, very high peaks of extreme integration and extreme consonance. Um, and they can happen actually more or less at will if you know how to produce them. Uh, and it has to do with basically um, focusing on the parts of your experience where there's like tessellations, where basically there's a small nucleating uh, symmetry that starts to swallow everything else. And if you try to harmonize all of your experience with a region of your experience that is already symmetrical, you can basically um, enter into this quasi-seizure state with all of your experience become <laughs> becoming kind of um, syntonized or in tune with a, a subset of it that is already hypersymmetrical. And when you do that, yeah, I mean, I would say those can get to the level of, you know, maybe 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 in the valence scale. Um, but they're like very brief, uh, mostly because it's a... Uh, unstable and I, I i do think there's like some phenomena that basically prevents the prevents you from like constantly being there um now if you use something um like the research <laughs> that, that we're doing at qri like basically stroboscopic stimulation the the flickering patterns together with music together with um sub back basically body vibration you can not only make it easier to arrive at those states, but also basically stay in them. Um, and generally speaking, we, we will predict that the longer you can stay into those hyper-integrated, hyper-symmetrical states on, on a psychedelic, the more therapeutic they will be, broadly speaking. It, not, it may not be the way to maximize the problem-solving ability that uh, psychedelics uh, enhance, because that requires kind of the unaided neural search to, to some extent. But when it comes to mood effects and especially kind of healing trauma and things like that, yeah, I mean, I think it's so much better to use something like a sub-pack <laughs> on a psychedelic than, than using nothing at all. Um, and finally, on dissociatives, just to kind of round up the picture, um, I do think there's this very large... Um, um, yeah, there's like these very large kind of like patterns of, of um, symmetry and harmonization. But as I was mentioning early on, they happen towards the end of the experience. And this is actually something that Stephen Lehar talked quite a bit about in his book, The Grand Illusion, which is kind of a pretty fascinating book by, you know, uh, the cog cognitive scientist Stephen Lehar, because he kind of like did a deep dive on understanding every substance he could get his hand on. And he wrote a book about basically all of his trip reports, not from the point of view of uh, mysticism or the point of view of just kind of his experiences, but, but basically how they informed his models of, of the brain. And in the chapter about uh, ketamine, he basically talks about first kind of this disintegration um, uh, process where everything kind of, yeah, all, all of the unified percepts fall apart and then there is an annealing period where basically little islands of experience starts to uh, pop up, kind of nucleating small uh, crystals uh, that kind of like start to compete for your attention. 
And eventually, you end up having kind of these two very large competing percepts. And there's a critical moment when finally they become synchronized. And that feels pretty <laughs> pretty orgasmic. There's like a moment of <laughs> this like, oh my gosh, all of my experience becomes synchronized and I'm this resonating object. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say those are very high valence states, but uh, it's definitely, they follow a timeline. I mean, it's not like the effect of ketamine is more kind of the later stage of the annealing process of, of the ketamine uh, arc. Yeah, I noticed like when I consumed ketamine, uh, like it, it definitely takes that progression that you described. Like you first uh, lose kind of everything depending on how much of it you take, but uh, you lose everything and then it all starts coming back. And I feel like when it's coming back, that's when it's actually, it's like, it's kind of like if your arm went numb because of the colds and then you like put it in hot water and then it starts like gaining the senses back and it's like tingling like crazy. Those are like kind of, like I feel like that is also kind of what psychedelics are kind of doing. It's like your sober experience of life is um, kind of more anesthetic in general. And then you've just been ripped out and brought up to a higher state of consciousness and anti-numbness. And... um but I noticed, like, on ketamine, when it wears off, like, everything feels weird for sure. And then also, like, the walls start to do the moving, like, the breathing and stuff at the very end, like, as I, like, pretty much when it's, like, wearing off even, um, it'll, well, this, this was on, like, a smallish dose, though. So, like, I've, it's harder to but but anyways, I won't like go into that. Um, one uh, yeah, I guess like one note on uh, time. I'll have to log out at six thirty, so like in half an hour. And I was wondering if it might be a good time before opening it up to to other people. And actually, if if I can have a forty second break, <laughs> I'll be back. I also have been trying to uh, reread the neural annealing and cognitive atomization articles while doing this and I'm trying to catch up but I want to ask but probably I should wait till he gets back I'm guessing um so um well what do you think or I don't know what is something random and interesting. Yeah, I have so many random and interesting things. I've been taking notes on, I can send you my notes afterwards. That would be good. Yeah, but I've been, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, like I, my coming from philosophy and I've just been thinking about all the ways that this intersects with philosophical concepts. Um, so like, I, I think of what, what unites atomization and annealing is that they're both window shattering processes and that they kind of shatter uh, perspective. They shatter, they shatter a window, right? But they also, atomization, um, actually, I guess, atomization is described almost as a phase in annealing. Totally, yes. So, like, atomization is part of annealing in that during, you, you realize that all of these connections between objects 
objects that you see are, are not real in a sense. Like, like at the, your experience becomes more atomized and the quality, the connections between, essentially your, your, uh, your things become stuff during atomization, right? Like all these thing objects that you have just become disunified stuff. Um, and so it seems like that might be a phase in annealing where you essentially, your systems disintegrate, your ability to see objects disintegrates, and then once that happens, then you do this kind of neural search for like new configurations that make more sense, and then eventually you reach like a lower energy state that's more annealed, and that might be like the integrated state after atomization happens. So it seems like yeah, atomization could be a really fruitful way, especially because it's so you have it so grounded. Like the mechanism that you have like hypothesized for atomization makes a lot of sense to me, based on um, NMDA or yeah NMDA receptors. Yeah, I think um, it's kind of interesting. Like, what if like what is more true in perception? Is the inter like so? I feel like. Like, the thing with, like, integration versus atomization, it's like, like, which one gives you a more true reality? I mean, in a sense, there that's there's no either or there, but it's kind of interesting because there's the flaws of integration would be that things become increasingly probably biased and become illusions more and, like... Uh, what is the word? Like, there's like a word for this overfitting. And then with atomization, though, it's like you're getting more information that is more nuanced in a sense. But the problem is that we don't exactly have the intelligence to deal with that kind of nuance. So if it's too much, I think we start like, like if we atomize like five objects in our vision to the point that we can not keep all those objects in our working memory, like there'll be a point where like we, we struggle to kind of keep an awareness of what our environment is because like we have to start dumping information and then the accuracy actually goes down. So there's probably like a sweet spot. Yeah, this is definitely a super interesting philosophical question of like which one, yeah, which one is closer to the true reality. And I actually don't find that a very meaningful question because I think that, I mean, it is meaningful and it's really interesting to think about, but I don't think that it's meaningful to say that there is like a fundamentally true reality here. I think they are, um, I mean, the, the true reality would be a greater awareness of both. So like, uh, if you if you would say that something has become more accurate, it would be a greater awareness both of an integrated experience and of an atomized experience. Because that's more of like an accumulation of perspectives than your perspective becoming better. Uh, um, does that make sense? Like you, yeah. your perspective has been improved. It's that you've gained an additional like memory, memory of like being uh, aware of all the different possible states and realizing the flaws of your current state. Oh yeah, for sure. Also like the cool, one of the coolest things I've realized while talking about, while listening to y'all and I don't know if Andres is back yet, but um, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Oh, sweet. It's just all the connections to philosophy. So like Plato, for example, talks about aporia and aporia is like the moment of, um, 
like realization of like the inability of your system to explain the world. So like in the Meno, like he gives this student a bunch of problems and the student can't solve the problems and the student realizes essentially that they're uncertain that, that nothing makes sense anymore. And that's kind of a neural annealing described in Plato. And then Heidegger describes the moment of breakdown, which is when like uh, when something when something in our experience breaks down, like for example, let's say when your phone breaks, normally you just see your phone as like a unit of meaning, like it's just the thing that you use to call with. It's called he calls it being ready to hand, um, like it's just ready at your hand, but you don't really see it as a phone. But when your phone breaks, you see it as a phone, and it kind of loses its meaning. I guess maybe a better example would be like if your bed breaks down, then you see it as like a set of a set of different objects, or maybe even like a set of disunified particles, or more atomized. But if your bed is like, it's just one object, you don't really see it. It's kind of just integrated as like a bed or a chair, for example. But when the chair breaks down into its different subunits, you see it as more present at hand, and that um, it's kind of like this set of disunified objects, or like it's more, it becomes more stuff-like than thing-like. Um, and then also Nietzsche talks about the same, the same concept. It's like very, I think it could be really interesting to trace the process of neural annealing from like a philosophical perspective, um, and that could be super cool. Yeah, no, definitely. It's uh, super interesting. Um, I would, uh, just to wind, wind up a little bit, I think, yeah, I mean, definitely there might be a sense in which there might be truer perceptions than others, but I think the <laughs> to actually get to that, we wouldn't need to, you know, make the distinction between functional unity versus ontological unity. And it's uh, still, to me, pretty unclear what actually um, is the necessary and sufficient conditions in physics for the generation of ontological unity. Uh, I mean, I, I would suspect it's probably something along the lines of quantum coherence, in which case a truer perception would have to would would be to have the exact you know precise level of cognitive atomization um, or variant of cognitive atomization in order to perceive objects in the terms of the quantum coherent bundles that are making them up. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I suspect it would be extremely different than than how we perceive objects nowadays because most rigid objects are not quantum coherent. So rigidity would all of a sudden not be the, the criteria. Um, on the other hand, yeah, I mean, if we just focus on functional unity, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a sense in which some states are much more accurate than others. Uh, and you can tell that by just the accuracy of your predictions. Uh, and predictions would be on problems such as, hey, if you push this object in your scene, what else is going to fall or what else is going to move? And, you know, if you're in a very dissociated state, um, you may not properly perceive the connections between the objects and maybe your prediction would be really, really off. Whereas if you're in the, in the right state of mind, you may actually make really good predictions. And, I mean, you can definitely see, for example, a baby, you know, shaking the leg of a table and all of a sudden, you know, the plates on the table fall on top of the baby. Okay, like that was a misperception of how things were connected and the danger of shaking something. So in that sense, the baby might have had an inaccurate perception of the world, at least in a, in a functional sense. The th it's interesting, mention, the mention of babies. That reminded me of... So you, so you mentioned that uh, like... Uh, uh, it, Children might be like microdosing. I think that the 
infant state would actually be quite crazy. Like, I feel like the lack, like everything would be kind of atomized probably. And also I feel like the function of being in that kind of psychedelic state where everything's like wavy and crazy and sensory things are crazy. I feel like there's an actual function in that like, like the child shouldn't anneal too quickly or else they might have really bad perception for the rest of their life. Maybe like if assuming that you don't ever go backwards to kind of correct things like, so I yep. feel like the child is kind of like in a loopy, uh, melty world that they're kind of like testing which perceptions have the most reward gains. Like, and I kind of feel like everything is reward or aversion or neutral, I guess, too. Like, I feel like even vision is guided by how much they bring us closer to rewards and help and also help us avoid um, like bad things. And like, maybe if we could present children with like increasingly like pressure to nuance, they would actually have better perception. Like maybe we could actually make super children or something. (laughs) (laughs) Right. By like matching the computational difficulty of the task exactly to where they're I guess, like, the, the process of perceptual learning is at... I mean, yeah, I think that would be a very interesting thing to to aim at. I mean, there's definitely this all of these fascinating, I guess, classic Piaget, um, like, you know, uh, studies and, and phenomena of kids when they're, like, I think, like, between four and five years old, they, they um, will judge the volume of a glass of water just in terms of how tall it is, <laughs> as opposed yeah. to... Also incorporating, you know, the width and they will have like these weird things such as thinking that you can create more water by, you know, transferring the, the water in a, <laughs> of a thick cup into a tall cup, um, which is clear, you know, clearly there's a, uh, some, some failure of uh, reasoning or, or connecting things in perception. But um, on the other hand, they may be really good at some other tasks that we, we don't particularly know of. I definitely think there's something to say that they have higher atomization, especially because you know, kids don't have an object in front of them as often, and so they kind of have temporal atomization where they can't see like the unity of a person over time. Um, so like can, they can kind of lose track of like what an object is, or they lose track of that one person is the same object over time. But it also it seems like they have more integrated experience in some ways, like the way um, Andres you were describing earlier how it's like their experience is similar to like maybe like 20 micrograms of LSD. Um, it seems like, yeah, they, they might have more atomized experience in some ways or some aspects in a higher integration in other aspects. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, definitely more uh, holistic reasoning would be a, a general feature, I think, as opposed to, uh, I guess, like serial, like logical linguistic reasoning, which definitely comes way later. Uh, and definitely, I mean, anhedonia, less anhedonia as well. Like, I mean, it's, I think like, yeah, when people are like 60 and they've been on a, let's say on a, on a very difficult career for a long while, oftentimes they, they're pretty anhedonic. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's definitely something that I think is way less common on, on, on children. 
It's funny, the, the point that you mentioned, Jeremy, I was like literally thinking something along those lines today and like, uh, no, I forgot now, but, um, oh, like, um, well, I don't know. I forgot. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually got that idea from you. Um, I was reading your, um, your article. Oh, sorry, I keep pressing the mic button. But I was reading your neural annealing article, and it mentioned something about temporal atomization. And so then I thought about, like, you know, kids and object permanence. Oh, like, what if children think that, like, well, this probably only would happen in, like, maybe extreme infancy or something but like i i feel like there's probably a point where the children haven't yet realized that like objects are the same thing like moment to moment or like um like is there really that's cool yeah, the research on object permanence shows that, yeah, they have temporal atomization, as you would call it. I, I don't think the research calls it that, but um, they lo- they don't see objects as the same thing over time. They kind of see them as separate stuffs. It's weird because what if that's actually true? What if, like, like I'm not really convinced that we are conscious or continuously the same consciousness or anything like that i feel like i feel like it's possible that nothing is ever really the same it just is all kind of following a kind of just patterns of behavior and and then like memory is kind of like a way that our brain evolved to communicate across like um, different consciousnesses that are like rebirthed every moment or something like that. Right. I mean, the maybe you've seen it, but yeah, the, the term uh, we would use for that is uh, empty individualism, where basically you're, a, a given person is not a natural unit. Rather, you should think of their brain as a consciousness machine or an experience machine. And each moment of experience is a completely different entity, um, which uh, you can contrast with um, closed individualism, which would be the common sense view that you start existing when you're born and stop existing when you die, or maybe you go to heaven or, or whatnot if, if you're a soul. Um, and then you have uh, yeah, open individualism, which is this idea that we are all one consciousness. And I mean, I think like from a philosophical and scientific point of view, Closed individualism is almost certainly false. Um, and uh, I think it's very hard to tell whether open or empty <laughs> is the case. But uh, yeah, they both seem to be consistent with uh, science and good philosophical argument for both of those. Yeah, that's interesting. I've heard of those terms, but I didn't actually know what they meant. I mean, I guess you could say that um, closed individualism is true in a functional or pragmatic sense, right? Like, you can say that I can construct a narrative, even if I am just, like, you know, an experience machine that produces um, disconnected units of experience, it might be pragmatic to, like, construct a narrative self, which is, like, the, that's like the perspective of the American pragmatist, that the self is essentially a narrative construction over time, and that it's, like, useful to see ourselves in that way. But I also definitely agree with Andres that that's 
not true in like the uh, metaphysical sense, and that like we are not actually individuals. We are it's something more like into your open individuals, and it's true. But you know, it could still be. Um, you know, this is like why. You know, it's like functionally useful to believe that we are a narrative self. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it definitely is very strange to leave actually believing in empty or <laughs> or or open individualism but um i mean i think you can do it on a high enough dose of a psychedelic then it actually it can feel true rather than just uh seeming true philosophically but um i would say that yeah i mean right now it's adaptive to to believe in closed individualism but uh as we develop more technologies of consciousness and potentially you know in the future with with new ways of um, experiencing reality or transferring memories yeah that might be uh pragmatically it may actually turn into that open individualism conforms better with <laughs> with our lived experience in a future ecosystem i hope so i hope that happened yeah <laughs> and obviously there's yeah, the other the ethical benefits of open individualism which is that um if you believe that we we're all one, there's actually a really good reason not to harm others, <laughs> because is irrational. Is actually just harming yourself. So I, I think it's actually good to foster kind of that that belief um, from a long-term pragmatic point of view. That like we're more likely to survive and live in a good future if a big chunk of people believe in open individualism than otherwise. I like that. It's like, is it, is this, this is open individualism is part of Buddhism, isn't it? Buddhism is very strange because it seems to have kind of conflicting views. And as far as I know, when they asked Buddha directly about like the continuity of, of the self, um, his response was like, it's an undecidable uh, problem and that it's a distraction. Um, but yeah, I mean, because they, they have like both like the doctrine of karma which sounds kind of uh, closed individualist. They also have like the no self theory, which would be empty individualist, but also they have like, we're all emptiness, which is open individualist. So <laughs> as far as I know, they, they haven't made up their mind actually. I think that some of that confusion might come from attempts by like Western interpreters to cohere different Buddhisms into one like Buddhism. And, and Sean McGowan knows a lot more about this, but you know, there are different forms of Buddhism, and there was a lot of, like, mistranslation as Buddhism was translated from Sanskrit into, I mean, from Pali into Sanskrit and then into English. And also, like, you know, there's Theravada and Pali Buddhism, and they, they have different and, like, pretty dramatically different beliefs. So some of those contradictions might be resolved by saying that, well, yes, this form of Buddhism believes in um, Atman or, or not Atman or the no-self, and some forms of Buddhism believe in, you know, closed individualism. Yes. And to, no, I, I think that's probably true. Uh, to answer DI77IHD, <laughs> uh, they say open individualism could happen to soldiers in a battlefield. And I think, I think yes, uh, generally speaking, I think like extreme experiences tend to challenge uh, preconceptions of personal identity. Definitely, there's a lot of personal reports of people who went to battle and saying that during the heat of the battle, they, they felt like they merged or they were kind of a um, unified self together with uh, the other soldiers on their side. Uh, but I would say also, yeah, things such as religious uh, service or, or mystical initiations or 
during meditation. In all of those situations, you can have like glimpses of perceiving the world as open individualism. This kind of reminds me of the altruists and the psychopath article that I did. It's like like that serotonin can um, possibly lead to both psychopathy and extreme altruism because of... Well, in the article it says a diminished sense of cost so that it might... Um, it might make it feel as if when you're giving to people that it, it you're not really losing anything, but also the problem with psychopathy might be that you're not afraid of the consequences of doing bad things. But in this, at the same time, it reminds me of like how people on psychedelics seem to experience open individualism and like unity and everything. But it gets weird because I think psychopathy could almost fit in there too. Like it just depends whether the person is maybe in love with uh, the unified self, like, or maybe even probably whether they have positive feelings about themselves versus negative. Like maybe if they're self-hating and also they might hate just everyone or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But with the battlefield, like in terms of war, that kind of made made it seem interesting because there was that contrast of how open individualism can make us highly ethical. And then on the battlefield, though, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if this is even going towards what you meant, Philip, but uh, like maybe killing could somehow be mentally... Like, maybe the guilt can be resolved somehow through open individualism or something. Although I don't have an explanation for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's definitely a disconcerting possibility that people might be more comfortable with uh, expanding people if, if they think like, oh, well, this, that's just another timeline of, of myself, <laughs> not not kind of like a, its own separate entity. Um but, uh, I mean, empirically, I would say, in most cases, when people uh, start to take open individualism seriously, they become far more altruistic. But it, it would be good to find counterexamples. Um, yeah, it seems like from my, um, like, looking back at when I read All Quiet on the Western Front multiple times, I think that the way that he describes and, like, other descriptions of war describe the process of, like, becoming willing to kill is more like... Um, yeah, I mean, it is it is like a change in your view of personal identity where you don't view the other as a as an entity, um, like a personal identity anymore. You kind of view them as more atomized. So like, you view them as like a set of limbs that are just like cohered together, but you don't view them as a unified object. And that doesn't seem to me to be like open individualism. It's more of like a view of the other as more of just like a set of stuff, um, even without consciousness. And that's kind of what a lot of like mechanisms of like training for warfare actually train people to think of the world in term or think of the enemy in terms of like discoherent like objects like you know like this limb and this limb attached to like this body but not as like a unified individual so you're saying uh <laughs> co co cognitive atomization <laughs> yeah potentially <laughs>
the, the other becomes atomized, um, and that allows for uh, that allows the brain to like justify murder to itself. But that also seems to be that seems like that might have some surface similarities to open individualism. Um, but I don't think it's it's actually the same thing. I don't know if this makes any sense. So kind of yeah. the thing I argued in the article is that what might distinguish whether someone is highly altruistic or highly psychopathic, it might be basically kind of philosophy or mindset in terms of like what if what if open individualism with Machiavellianism might uh, produce psychopathic tendency. So for example, with Machiavellianism, I think that it might start where the person is abused by other people or something, but then they might, um, like, like, uh, I'm trying to think it's hard to connect to this open individualism thing, but I feel like open individualism combined with other people, uh, abusing you, maybe you would justify it and lower your self-worth and then lower the self-worth of everyone else. And, but that's not what's in the article though, but I think maybe that could make sense. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, to kind of like patch, patch this problem, I, I would generally say that, um, I mean, I think like the, the path we're interested in is, ways of creating both highly blissful states of consciousness together with kind of metaphysical clarity, uh, potentially open individualism or even empty. But um, you need, I think, like both. Because, yeah, I mean, if you're suffering intensely and on top of that you believe we're all one consciousness, it, it, it may not necessarily lead you to um, basically try to, to make <laughs> the world better. But if you know that there is actually the possibility of an extremely amazing paradise uh, if we just coordinate to make it. I think uh, combining it with open individualism really leads to a lot of much more pro-social effects, which would be like, hey, I mean, like a really positive 5-MeO DMT experience has those attributes. It, on the one hand, dissolves internal boundaries so that you feel that you're one with everything. And on top of that, it also is an extremely high valence state. So it would yeah, basically, anneal, uh, extremely pro-social uh, state of consciousness. And, and I think like that's, generally speaking, what happens. Now, of course, then you have to be extremely careful about very bad 5-MeO-DMT trips, which also happen. Um, so <laughs> very important to, to figure out how to prevent those as well. This is kind of going back to something earlier, but on a similar topic... Um, I was, when you were describing how, like, the effects of cannabis decrease over time and that they become more, um, you know, like, at first they're more psychedelic and then they slowly become more, like, psychosis. And I was thinking that potentially that's because of, like, diminishing returns of annealing. Like, the first annealing is, like, a substantial change in your model. Um, so there's, like, this law of diminishing annealing is, like, over time if you try to anneal within maybe the same subsystem or uh, the same model then if you, if you continually do that, over time your returns will decrease. Um, and by returns, I mean like the change in potentially your view or in, in the model. Um, and so like if you try to continually anneal something, maybe that even produces negative effects and not just like a decrease in the increase in integration. Um, I'm kind of like thinking out loud here, but it seems like for cannabis that might be that 
the first experience is like highly annealing because you experience this new state of consciousness um, that you know allows you to return to like a um, more integrated state. But then as you continually do that, the returns decrease and eventually it even becomes uh, like productive of psychosis. Yeah, I think I think that's probably likely. And also, I think there's other factors like I have a feeling that cannabis probably potentiates trauma. Like I, I don't necessarily think that about classical psychedelics. I actually think that like really intense situations, I think sometimes people on psychedelics can actually handle that stuff. Um, like I've sort of experienced stuff like that where probably if I wasn't even on the psychedelic, I would have been more freaked out. But I think it depends because I think there's like uh, the, the, there's like two receptors of 5-HT2 receptors that seem to have like opposite effects. One of them seems like highly aversive. The other one is anti-aversive. So I feel like that plays a role in different reactions but but anyways with cannabis i feel that it like basically tends to potentiate senses and everything to where everything is like really loud and that aversive experience is probably shut down like like being traumatized or highly stressed out probably turns off um the annealing effects more and puts you in like a survival mode where everything becomes more minimalistic and just like like you must just focus on what's necessary and but i think it becomes associated to cannabis like i think people associate the trauma to cannabis and then also like something i've noticed is if i take it like I, I would take it to like the grocery store and then I've gotten like anxious and then every time I've ever returned, well, not forever, but a lot of the, whenever I would return to the store for months after that, I would pretty much enter a state that was like I was on cannabis, but I wasn't. And um, I'm pretty sure that it's not necessarily that it was like cannabis, but that cannabis amplified the traumaticness of it. And I was entering the store and experiencing those traumatic effects. And at the same time, every time I would consume cannabis in other contexts, it was already linked to trauma. So I, it would, it would just like basically, basically be consumable trauma inducing effect. And I think that it can go either way. Things can be blissful or traumatizing on cannabis, but I think even if it's just like 50-50 or something, if you ever experience those traumatic effects, I think then you will keep, like I think your trips might start to bias towards that until you fix it, basically. Yeah. Uh, hey guys, I've got to jump out to another call. But uh, <laughs> I mean, this, this has been a fascinating discussion and uh, we should do it a, again at some point. Yeah, let's, thank you so much for coming. No, thank you. Uh, really awesome. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, apologies. We <laughs> lost a lot of time at the beginning because of yeah. technical issues, but now we know better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks. Cool. Well, th thank you, everybody. And uh, look forward to chatting again at some point. Yeah, let's I'll do it. I'll see you around.
<laughs> See ya. And I'll, I'll send you the file uh, when I download it, uh, uh, Gage. Okay, yeah, thank you. All right, take care, everyone. Toodaloo. Uh, if you guys want to keep talking, I am down for a little bit. Yeah, I, um, let me see. I have, I'll send you my notes. Um, they're pretty messy, but let me just share the link. I just got the end of the discussion. So I didn't want to jump in. Oh, no worries. Uh, feel free to do so now if you wish. Yeah, uh, I was just um, thinking about uh, violence and open individualism. I think there's, uh, I mean, in traditional mythology, there's the use of, uh, say, altered states that are similar to psychedelic states associated with violence. So, for example, in Nordic mythology, you have the idea of uh, Valhalla, where you just, it's basically uh, everyone is in altered state and fighting all the time, and it's supposed to be uh, paralyzed. So, uh, the, I mean, in, in some sense, it, it does have the, at some point, basically, the idea of the physical body being harmed. Uh, it's not necessarily as dangerous as the idea of the, say, spiritual body or mental body being harmed. Or it must be even fun, in a sense. Because it's like movement, physical activity, you're fighting, endorphins are high, dopamine is high, and your body gets recovered every day, so it's fine. So that, that's kind of the, the Nordic, uh, Nordic mythological idea of paradise. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's a really interesting connection. I would also say this is connected to, like, there, I mean, a lot of wars have actually, especially in, like, the last century, have used drugs in order to, like, enable their soldiers to, you know, like, for example, uh, the Nazis distributed meth to most soldiers. I think around 30% of soldiers dosed meth at least once, which doesn't sound like a lot. Um, but I think at some points in the war, it was, like, dramatically more than that, where almost, like, everyone... In like the um, in the German army was on meth, and so like it seems like certain drugs enable that, but also psychedelics in that they um, disintegrate your identity. It might allow you to enter this like Valhalla-like state where you think that like you're going to that your identity is no longer real and you're kind of like death is no, no longer is like scary to you in that sense, in that um, you're no longer as invested in your own identity because of the psychedelic disintegration of the self. To add to, to that, I just don't, I, I really think that it's made in minor uh, kind of a concern. Like, I, I agree with what Anders said, like, it seems to be, there's a trend, it seems to be, there's a chance of certain loops leading to that, and it's important kind of, to understand uh, what is those chances kind of or what kind of triggers or what kind of preconditions exist and can lead to this. <clears throat> and also even at, at a philosophical point of view, like, uh, if you take this idea really seriously, uh, yeah, I don't know. At that point, actually, I would prefer not to say anything, because it actually is a problematic point, because it goes deep into the 
what sort of ethics we have in connection to the body uh, and the body-mind connection and stuff like that, that I don't think there's any sense of going into that. Sorry. What's kind of interesting is the part, even though it wasn't really the focus of it, the part about the difference of spiritual pain or injury and physical injury it reminds me of like say say you get intensely physically harmed but it's through some sort of accident and like say through well i don't know that kind of like depends but let's say like a person accidentally steps on your foot or something and then there's a distinction, like if someone intentionally steps on your foot, like if someone accidentally does it, you're probably not going to be traumatized. But if someone were to like glare you in the eyes and give you the exact same injury, it might like scar you, which is like, it's kind of interesting. Like it's, it's almost only the psychological narrative that matters there for, um, for it being like a really bad experience. Yeah, I agree, definitely. Uh, there's, there's a paper I think I mentioned to you once um, talking about how uh, depression uh, increased pain in general. Uh, or maybe you read something in that line as well. And it seems to be a similar effect because uh, certain mind states or certain um, generic states of being can lead you to see uh, bad intention more often. And I, I think depression is sometimes like that. Like people would tend to see um, like bad intention or harmful intention in others more often than than they should, or more often than is true. Uh, and then say kind of a negative things that happens can be given this intentionality to it more often and this hurts this is kind of a more uh, augment the negative value in some sense it's very like loopy too like uh, that's sort of problem of like um, kind of developing a uh like pretty much it's kind of like a confirmation bias to find all of the negative things like probably it could even be true that like small negative intentions exist all over that are usually ignored or but it but the depressed person might notice them a lot and kind of why well, I, I don't know i think that didn't go where I was thinking. No, but it's true. I agree with that in some sense. It is true. And also it touched the other side. Because I think one one big thing here is like how to engineer like um, your mental framework of how to receive those feedbacks in order to be in a good state. And and uh, and I think it is, it is true that there's actually a lot of negative signals that is... Uh, in different states you might notice them more or less and then the kind of uh, the ethical question to yourself is like 
uh, it might be better to ignore them, and it might be better to be in a, or to make ourselves be in states that we can ignore those things, because then you cut the loops. Because it's it's mostly, I think a lot of those stuff is about recognizing the loops, like the reinforcement of things, and cutting them. Uh, th this will be uh, for me. This is like the the basic idea of dealing with trauma. It's recogni recognizing the reinforcement loops of negative, um, uh, say, qualia, <laughs> in sense, and cutting them. And if you if you recognize that. This is something, and if you stop uh, uh, reinforcing it, then it might be a beginning, of, uh, like a precondition to, to getting out of the generic negative state of depression. That totally holds true with, like, my experience of things. Like, I've had experiences where... I I lived with my grandmother and like like there would be almost no talking involved so much in these situations but I would be like ashamed of myself basically and it would make me act more like I would communicate my shame through body language and my tone of voice and different stuff and I feel like it drove her to view me with shame, but not not in a cruel way. It was like pity, basically. And, and I actually don't know which side of things it started first, because like before I lived with her, I basically came out of like a uh, from her perspective, it was just a completely horrible situation. So she would have a reason to pity me, but I realized I spent like so much time in these loops where I don't know, like her viewing me with pity really like reinforced my self shame. Like I was just thinking like, I don't know, like she's viewing me as like, like she has empathy, but she views me as being so inferior of a person basically in a way. And then like I've actually dosed shrooms and just completely snapped out of that spontaneously. And then when I went back to my house that day, I uh, acted less self-ashamed and it caused my grandmother to actually respond spontaneously as well. And this made me realize that like, like this kind of fits in with like social hierarchies and like serotonin and dominance. And I was realizing like, like this is kind of where the idea of like shamanism as a social engineering person kind of fits in because I feel like if you think of like political chaos and like the state of the world, even right now, like everyone is functionally addicted to this coronavirus situation. And I'm pretty sure like all of us here probably feel some amount of that where like you c we observe ourselves being so highly addicted to the narrative. Like, and I'm pretty sure a lot of us are even partly excited by this. But if 
someone were to dose like shrooms or something, they might just snap out of that loop and then they can come back. Like, like all the people that are addicted to this narrative about the virus, they're not going to be like rejecting it. And I mean, some might try to, but a lot of people aren't going to be rejecting it and then trying to start a new narrative. They're all kind of like hurting towards it. And so like someone could take psilocybin and then erase that, come back and then create new loops for people to change their behavior. Like, like just simply being able to introduce something that isn't the virus narrative into their life might actually like fix some of those people's problems that are related to the looping. Oh my God. I love this idea. This is so cool. And I, we need to talk more about shamanism gauge, but um, I think definitely it's like a powerful form of social engineering that allows us to shift narratives. Um, and that like, there is a shamanic method um, that's like documented anthropologically that shamans across cultures generally use and it generally involves psychedelic dosing. So it's like, it's pretty fascinating. It seems like potentially the role of the shaman is to undergo repeated annealing or to like see, to see kind of different perspectives, allow their models to disintegrate repeatedly and then to kind of come back to their society and then um, it, it essentially allows the society, like every individual in the society doesn't have to undergo neural annealing because the shaman does it for them. And then the shaman returns and then like shares their change perspective and that allows the society as a whole to change. Um, so it kind of can liberate them from like these thought loops where they're like constantly thinking about like, oh, the virus, like, something like that. Um, whereas when the shaman comes back, and, like, you know, it's like, it's hard to say whether the shamans actually had an adaptive benefit, but it seems like the evidence indicates that they did have a benefit because they're just so common um, across cultures. This, uh, but this goes to, to kind of a direction that it's always a little bit like tricky for me. Because uh, like I remember the uh, uh, first time I was taking psychedelics, there was a, it was a friend who said, okay, I'm gonna introduce this to you, it's gonna be helpful. And then, but then also he kind of uh, hinted that he doesn't like shamanism and then that he wanted me to be able to do it on my own and also to not, um, uh, like to avoid creating exactly this, uh, uh, some sort of a power position, uh, which is a very easy analysis and I have an artistic and it sounds like that's how the anarchic behavior goes into psychedelic, which is to reject the, the position of someone who's gonna make the journey for you. And I'm also, because uh, after, after that, I was like, yeah, it is true, I think. Because in some places, uh, you can see this going bad, and basically, if you have a bad leader, you can go in bad direction, so it's about how much we spread risks in society. So like, yeah, I'm a, a good shaman would be able to guide a group in interesting ways, and then a bad shaman. And then the issue is like, will they converge? Uh, all the shamans converging towards something, or are some diverging? 
So we get to this kind of uh, space where it's always very, uh, it's, it's a question about if convergence is an issue that comes naturally um, or not. Uh, and then if convergence is something that is, uh, like what is the preconditions to the convergence? Is only the specific shamans with specific, say, neural uh, architectures that will converge and, and this is the precondition for it or is not and blah, blah, blah. And things go very, like, in this kind of space. So it gets me a bit in that space. But in the other side, as, a, as, as I, like, went on in life and talked with people, I noticed that actually a lot of people ask for uh, a guide. So although I kind of reject the idea of trying to guide people or even having a guide, um, I notice that it's a demand that exists, at least in, in some sense. Like, people seem to want to be guided. Yeah, that's a great summary. And I definitely share the anarchic or individualist tendency to say, like, no, you're not going to undergo the journey for me. Like, I need to experience it for myself. Um, so I'm not really suggesting that, like, there has to be this, like, shamanic authority figure in, like, a power position. But I am saying that, like, from a descriptive and not a prescriptive point of view, that is how, like, a lot of tribal cultures functioned, and that they had a shaman who, my speculation, and this is, the evidence for this is not clear, but my speculation that those individuals who did play the shaman role likely had schizoaffective personality, what we would today call schizoaffective personality disorder or schizophrenia or bipolar, um, or they were siblings of people who had and the evidence for that is like kind of unclear, but it seems to be the case that like certain personality types and certain mental illnesses make someone more prone to being a shaman. And they actually, in like Tibet, for example, they still call schizophrenia the shaman sickness. And they view it as like, this is a stage of the journey to becoming a shaman. And eventually when like the schizophrenic experience is integrated, then you become a shaman and you become a shaman. Um, and as far as like the question of like are the shamans like converging towards something, I'm not even sure what that would look like or how we would tell, um, especially because we don't really have shamans anymore in like, this global assimilated like culture. Um, but it seems like you know maybe they have like similar tendencies. There was one study of like the shaman experience that said that. The only common experience among at least Native American shamans is that their shamanic experiences involved a death experience and then a return to life. So, like, um, that's generally what happens. So it seems like there's some convergence in the shamanic experience. And there's, like, maybe that has to do with, like, exposure to fundamental archetypes, as Ian would say. But I'm not sure how we would tell or how we can actually find evidence for that. Yes, yeah, I agree. Have you seen that, uh, I think it's um, Nautilus, uh, the disease with no name or something like that, that tells a story about this kid uh, with schizophrenia, that he found his way to, to integrate in himself better via this, uh, I think it's Senegalese or Mali uh, author, uh, who is the brother of a shaman on his tribe. He's a philosopher in the US. He writes books, and he, he tells it's basically the same thing you described about uh, like either the person or the the siblings. 
and and he he kind of conceptualized that and discussed it, and it was a like a kind of a, a, a helpful guide to this kid to find his way to to integration. And th there's this article; it's very beautiful. I really like it a lot. Yeah, I just linked it in the chat. That is super interesting. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I just I just linked it, and I'll definitely read it. That's I, I've read similar things. Like there's a story of someone who, um, yeah, essentially had schizophrenia and then, like went to, I think like a Nigerian shaman, and like the Nigerian shaman trained him, and then like his schizophrenia was healed. Like I don't remember that story completely, but it seems like it's possible that like part of the reason why mental illnesses manifest as negative symptoms is because of the way that we're framing them. And if we could narrativize them in a different way, or like treat them as a shaman sickness rather than as a mental disorder, then that would actually change the symptoms because the model by which the mentally ill patient kind of like interprets their psychosis would be different. Like if you interpret your psychosis as um, like shamanic signs, that might change, that might make the valence of the experience actually change. Like it might become positive valence to have psychosis rather than, you know, usually it's negative valence because you perceive it as like a sign of your sickness or your, a sign of your mental I think it's possible, and I just kind of thought of this right now, so I haven't like thought it out fully or anything, but there could be this dynamic where like if you imagine cuz i sort of think that with like schizophrenia and bipolar there's some opposites and some overlaps i think the overlap would be probably an extremely sensitive experience of life in general and then i think though with the schizophrenic they might be highly attuned to aversive experience whereas let's say like the manic will be almost too resilient to the point that like like if we look at it in terms of this model of like shamanism you could imagine that the the manic person in society would function as kind of like guiding people in a way that is um, very like much fearless and risky and creative and progressive, but then possibly the negative consequence would be like stuff, so something kind of like psychopathy or something where like the person may not, uh, maintain sight of how risky or dangerous their path is. But then as for the schizophrenic, they could function as being highly aware of the negative consequences. It's like in the, in the low end, they might be seemingly overreacting to small problems, but then on a more like extreme end, they're like claiming that the leaders of society are just evil and conspiring and like they're highly sensitive to trauma and aversion and like any sense of negative qualia basically. And so like the manic might be better at guiding people towards like immense rewards from 
novel technology or something, let's say, or exploring new things in general, whereas the schizophrenic tendency might be like establishing security for everybody, like being most sensitive to the dangers in the world and protecting. Like, so security versus seeking out pleasures and abundance. Like, so so one would be more like focused on necessity probably too. Or I don't know, what do you think about that? I mean, there's a model for that, that is, is sorry, the prophet. Hmm. The guy who, who sees the future and, and shouts in the, in the middle of the, uh, <laughs> the society how dangerous it, it is, the, the path that is going. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's exactly that. That's pretty common in today's world still. <laughs> Maybe Alex Jones? Alex Jones jokes on I'm actually writing about an idea that fits in really well right here. Like, it's pretty much like a 2.0 for xenotypy, except it doesn't really focus on genes anymore. I mean, it is about evolution, but it's not about any particular known gene necessarily. Um, but basically it's this idea that if you imagine like travel or like migration of people, like a society that establishes in some new territory, I think they will become increasingly conservative as time passes. Like they'll be 
building a society, everything is new, and that's what would drive the novelty seekers at first. But the longer you stay there, the less novel it would be unless they're building technology. And presumably, maybe not as much in the current world, like dynamics might change, but you would run out of resources and then move along or something like that possibly. And, um, and I think it's way more complex than just that though, but, but you could imagine, and I'm kind of forgetting some of the points of, of it cause it's all kind of, uh, newish, but, but the idea that like the culture would become like progressively um, oriented towards like preserving uh, the historic or ancestral culture of the area and then kind of kick out the people that are craving change constantly. And then those people will keep finding new places. And so like the tendency would be kind of like to filter out genes more and more um, there was like way more explanation for why the pattern would be like that, but I don't remember it anymore. So sorry about that. Yeah, I think you're okay. I was just going to jump in because I was very curious for a while about, I think I mentioned this to you. At one point I noticed that a lot of, uh, there's like two sides. One point is that a lot of the companies that are like seats for migration, uh, even modern migration, like modern in uh, 500 years ago to now, uh, they have combined uh, high level of depression and anxiety, which got me thinking about this. So even countries that are very like nice, in sense, the one that got me really like weird out with Cape Verde now, I grew up there. And it's a, kind of a, one of the best African countries, no history of uh, war or whatever, but high levels of depression and anxiety compared to whole Africa. And then Brazil, USA, Australia, in uh, the Pacific, and all that. Then, uh, then I was also very curious about the speed that people migrated in the Americas. So you got uh, people going basically from North to South America. Some imagine that even like one to two generations. Uh, uh, that's kind of an extreme, but still, um, it was much, much faster than the whole migration of population within uh, Eurasia. So you get kind of a, for example, the whole um, branch in America, it can kind of be clustered together with the branch in North uh, Asia, like Siberia, like the closest to indigenous people in the whole America is like some Siberian people which also they are kind of close to Finnish people, which is another story. But, um, and then I was looking into this, and there was like some people investigating this already, like how uh, the RV4 or 7 mutation uh, goes all along uh, in America, for example, and it's high uh, prevalence. Uh, in some tribes, it gets to 50%. Uh, percent. Uh, wow. And, and then uh, the other side of this is that some tribes like the ones that are still hunter-gatherers, they have high prevalence. And the ones that became uh, agriculture-based, so uh, tribes, uh, the prevalence went really down 
It's amazing. Really interesting, and it's because I think the method is kind of self-selection. I don't say if it's, it's actually like to the benefit of both. Like if you are someone who don't like to, to stay in the same place, and if you are like a bunch of people like that, and there's like another bunch of people that like to be in the same place, then the natural consequence is that you you would drift apart. Um, what I think what is kind of interesting in the modern society is that you manage to have some sort of combination of both, uh, uh, like the, the people who move and the people who are risk-taking and the people who are conservative and the people who are afraid, uh, managing to stay in the same place. And, and just to connect back to another idea that we were discussing before, the manic and the schizophrenic, uh, and um, there is one reading of the Old Testament that it's about a clash between the prophets and the, the like the, uh, the priests. So basically, the prophets they are both religious leaders. Uh, so they have visions. They tell you about what what they saw, what God is telling them, what is the future, what is the, the direction to go, but they clash. Uh, so some, some view of uh, the whole order or as a clash between those two groups. Uh, but another way also of seeing that it's not necessarily a clash, but they will destroy each other, but compensate each other, because they basically uh, we are talking about the, the manic and the in a sense. Like the ones who want to push forward, the ones who want to build stuff uh, or uh, kind of a progressive force in society in a sense uh, and the other is more like things are going bad. So I think at some point we can get kind of the best of two worlds of risk taking, of novelty seeking and of like building stuff and progressing within the same say space. Uh, and this is, this is, I think, is a very kind of a, a rare, maybe, because it's about balance or luck, and that's why probably modern society is very weird, because we, we kind of hit some sort of a, uh, a rare combination. Yeah, I think, like, like it seems that the current state of America, it's it's like what America was, was a bunch of people came here and destroyed everything that was here so that they can use it as like a new territory. It's sad, of course. But um, then all the people from other countries that are like um, looking or those who are rejected for contradicting the culture or to well i don't know but but i think there's something about like over time the genetic pool of a stable society will just inherently become conservative like and i think america's reaching like a point where it's getting really tense because, like, it, it, it also fits in with the whole ho- homogeneousness 
idea and even like the pandemic ideas. Um, I don't know if you guys have read the pandemic, pandemic, uh, xenophobia posts, but it kind of actually connects with xenotypy in a weird way too, where like, um, like I think the society will become like, um, more collaborative and cooperative. And I think the ones that are like increasingly homogeneous, the ones that aren't, um, is involved with like migrating and changing places and like interbreeding with like, uh, diverse people and stuff. The ones that kind of like sit there and keep sitting there generation after generation, uh, they'll become like more homogenous and that, enhances cooperation and enhances their society but then the contrast between the cooperative people basically and the ones who keep disagreeing becomes like bigger like like so like in San Francisco or the liberal states there's enough diversity to where it's just kind of like an equal level of oh we all disagree so we have to put up with it and we accept that. This is freedom. This is why we traveled to this place, because it is like this. Like, we go to San Francisco or whatever for the diversity, basically. But then the homogeneous places, there's, like, a very clear contrast of, like, people who are conforming and not doing it. And that makes it seem unfair and unethical, like... This person thinks they can benefit from our cooperative cooperation that we're like working so hard for, but then they won't do things that are pro-social for us. Then that's why they'll be expelled from the society and pushed into like another place where it's like diversity and chaos. And those that's the place where everyone will fight for cultural change and uh, pro- progress because nothing is even established yet. Like there is the place where everything is anarchic enough that it, you actually do have a chance to create a new homogeneous culture that is improved from the last one, either through like technology or culture or ethics. And then probably the conservative, more homogeneous states or areas will kind of eventually stagnate with a lack of influence and then they'll become more xenophobic and keep keep out people who are different, oppose immigration laws and um, just kind of like, like, so in pandemic xenophobia, the idea would be this, that they become increasingly eusocial, kind of like ants and like, um, I feel like there's benefits to both sides, like the anarchic and the highly collaborative conformist socialist. Like, that's the weird part, too, is it's almost like the conservative or the right is actually highly socialist, but only if you conform and they expect you to do everything that they do. They expect you to conform and do your part, your work, but then the actual socialist liberal laws kind of, um, they're like helping people who don't conform, which pisses them off. Cause it's like, they're basically giving away free socialism 
that they don't get. It's actually like unfair to them in a weird way. But well, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, that was. I mean, that was a lot, and like that was a great summary of your Xenotypian uh, pandemic xenophobia articles, which were both great. I think that it's definitely true that uh, settled populations kind of experience this greater homogenization that might be adaptive in the sense that you describe of like um, you describe naked mole rats how they're like super homogenous, and the way that they maintain this homogeneity while protecting themselves from pandemics is essentially by being hyper xenophobic. Um, because they want to protect themselves from any like potential new uh, naked mole rat that might like spread a pandemic, um, because their homogenous like genetic makeup is so vulnerable to pandemic spread. So I mean, and that makes sense. I don't think that it's happening in humans at the literal sense of like. I don't think that we become genetically homogenous just because the time scale is too slow. Uh, I mean, it's too fast. Like, you know, we transition between settled and nomadic societies. Or, like, this, the transitions between societies are too fast for, like, actual genetic selection to happen. But I think there's definitely a sense of, like, psychological selection where certain certain types are promoted. Um, and it may be as a Zay, Z-E-H, I don't know how, <laughs> was describing how, like, um, people who do not fit the society's model will essentially leave. And so like he was talking about the prevalence of the DRD4 dopamine receptor, which predicts novelty seeking and how like in settled societies that decreases. And I was thinking about potentially like in the US, you might even see that. Like I wonder if you did an analysis of the US, whether the kind of older agricultural populations that have like stayed essentially in the same place for a long time, rather than like migrating to the cities, if those populations have like a lower prevalence of novelty seeking and even a lower prevalence of like um, the schizotypic personality, uh, which is like associated with like the, the essentially like the family members of schizophrenic people, um, you know, have personality differences on average. So it might be that like these urban areas have higher levels of novelty seeking in the population. And it might even be that, like, a small change in that is enough to, like, have a really big change in the societal culture, because just, like, a few high-impact, highly novelty-seeking people are enough to actually shift the entire cultural perspective. Um, I don't know. That could be possible. I think there would be a correlation if... Well, so the reason I'm... Not in the new article, I'm not using the DRD4 gene only because I've actually been getting criticism sometimes for using candidate gene research, and that one is a candidate gene. And, um, but I, I have like arguments against those criticisms, but I'm also not entirely confident in that. And I'm still kind of working on that project too, but I won't even get into that right now. But, but I do think, let's say for sure it is, let's pretend that it for sure is correlated to like novelty seeking and stuff. There's also like the research that correlates it to conservatism and like political preference and stuff, which if like we could in a sense extrapolate that to like the territories that vote based on those values and stuff like that. And it probably would still correlate, I think. Like, cause you mentioned 
that like it would be interesting to check like like say San Francisco has like a huge amount of people with DRD4 but then like some like small town in the south in an agricultural place uh doesn't or something right or places like Utah for example which have like most people in Utah are descended from the original pioneers who like converted to Mormonism and then like crossed the plains so generally in like evolutionary history we see that the populations that made like large migratory movements to like new environments had a higher prevalence of the DRD4 gene um, because like generally those populations were selected for novelty so like for example if you're going to be in a Polynesian tribe like like you know hundreds of hundreds of miles thousands of miles away from like our evolutionary origin in, in Africa that means that probably there that population underwent a long selection process for novelty seeking um so like you know in hawaii there's like very high level at least in the native population very high levels of drd4 genes because of that novelty. and i'd imagine that you'd see similar things but it's interesting because you know in utah there's like a very homogenous culture um so it's like even even if the original population maybe was novelty seeking that might not last very long um, and, but it does seem like san francisco and new york for example have like a consistent like novelty-seeking culture, potentially. Um, oh, this. Sorry, sorry to cut you off, but it totally ties in, and I'll probably totally forget. I'm sorry, but so, like with San Francisco, you could imagine like the transition might be like happening now, where the novelty seekers are creating these tech companies, and the people they employ. They're selected to be tolerant against novelty seeking because of how crappy the jobs actually are. And they would keep like filtering people and then maybe certain novelty seeking people can't even like afford to be in San Francisco. So they're forced out and then you'd get more and more workers as more and more and like a smaller uh, entrepreneurial people who like actually survive and it would just eventually become like a bunch of like not novelty seekers who get pissed off and then they will cause cultural change to reject that lifestyle i bet like in the future right just especially okay just um, uh to continue on that I, I think like the the i agree Having the candidate to take this thing, make it fuzzier the argument. Uh, but it's nice to look at that and, and get insights. But in the other side, there's some research on other things that are more like can be correlated, but they are also more directly uh, measures of society. So I read a long time ago when I moved with. And I was trying to figure out the whole knowing because it was very weird. Uh, because it seems to be very progressive, but also people are really new uh, social. Like there's a high, um, kind of like what you describe of Utah, I would say, like, progressive, maybe in some sense. People are open to new ideas, you know, but also a high ex- expected. Um, uh, belief of expecting to conform, something like that. And then I found this article and it was like mind-breaking. Uh, 
kind of expanding on our time. They did um, uh, research on 33 cities, and this is one of the problems. Cities, they focus on specific cities, but all over the, uh, the world. And what they were measuring were uh, kind of a, it's something, uh, I can describe it this way. So instead of asking things about how, how do we agree uh, that uh, society should be organized in a good way, so this kind of survey, they ask things like, uh, if you spit on the floor, do you uh, expect your peers to judge you against or for it? Or if your peers spit on the floor, would you judge them or not? Uh, are you, if you start singing aloud in an elevator, how would you feel like you're being judged? Or, you know, this kind of a micro behavior uh, that you would think of them as very personal. But also on this survey, they would try to get uh, the idea of how much of that behavior is being kind of regulated by, um, by other people with uh, kind of ideas. So, uh, long story short, they make a, a, a kind of a rejection of this in one dimension. One side of this they call uh, tolerance to abnormal behavior. And the other side is, uh, I think it's conforming to social norm. Uh, and then in all ways, uh, surprisingly, for a, for a place that's supposed to be progressive, is on the extreme of the, the conforming to social norms uh, on this research. And then, uh, and then you have places like uh, Greece or Brazil uh, that is in the other side, and then there's a lot in between. Uh, but they did the same research in the US. Uh, I don't have a lot of intuition about how things are in the US. Um, so, I, but I think if I, I, if I send you guys this research both in the world and in the US, you'll probably find a, a correlation there. Because I think on this one that they did on the US, some people, I read some comments and like, said, so, wow, this makes a lot of sense and stuff like that. So, so I can send you this. That sounds super interesting. Yeah, I'd love to read that. It seems like, um, you know, like political progressiveness is not necessarily associated with cultural progressiveness in this sense, or even like, um, maybe it's probably not best to call it progressiveness, but more of like novelty seeking or cultural, like a cultural level of openness to experience. In the same way that you can measure the per like the individual personality level openness to experience, potentially you could create a metric that measures a cultural openness to experience. And that's not necessarily correlated with like its political progressiveness or you know like where it is in the political axis. Although obviously openness to experience is going to be generally associated with being more politically progressive. Um, at least that's what we find on a personality level. Yeah, I gotta go. But thank you, Gage. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I will upload this, and hopefully all of you are in the audio. I don't know for sure. I'm going to try to equalize everything out, though. So, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Bye. See ya. So, thank you for watching, or listening, I should say. 
I would like to lastly thank Avi and Charles for uh, being the first two patrons, and also Chris, who has helped make this project possible. Uh, thank you so much. It really means a lot. And uh, I hope you continue to tune in next time. Uh, thanks. Goodbye.